It's a great uh, honor to be here. Uh, I'm delighted to have been invited to give uh, an Eve Simone lecture, and I'd just like to apologize in advance. I'm getting over a cold, so I hope that the symptoms uh, from that will not unduly uh, have, a, have a negative influence on my presentation. I will be discussing some ideas adapted from my current book project, which is an experiment in historical explanation and method. At its heart is a paradox that one of historians' principal objectives, namely accounting for how our present world came to be the way it is, might fruitfully be pursued by departing, in certain respects, from some widely held assumptions characteristic of historical practice. My book's working title is Disentangling the West, the Reformation Era and the Makings of Modernity. Its central argument is that we cannot grasp the nature of human life in Europe and North America today without analyzing the complex, tangled, and unexpected combination of ideological and institutional historical realities that have led to it over the long durée, longer than most historians think. Paradoxically, but precisely for this reason, the relationships among those realities tend to remain hidden from historians, who ordinarily work within a given historical period, often further delimited by national focus and type of history. Medievalists and early modernists rarely carry their analyses into the modern era. Modernists seldom investigate the pre-modern past. Deeply institutionalized ideas about periodization tend to reinforce the widespread crypto-Hegelian assumption that later periods transcend earlier ones in sharply historicist ways. Medieval realities gave way to early modern and then modern realities, leading to where we are, a one-way succession of stages that have left Westerners since the early 19th century, in Peter Fritsch's phrase, feeling stranded in the present. Peter Laslett's pre-modern world we have lost is assumed to have been left behind with the dramatic transformations wrought by the intellectual, political, social, and technological revolutions of modernity. Certainly the combination of capitalism and consumerism characteristic of the industrious and industrial revolutions has hugely transformed the Western world as did the Atlantic revolutions and Napoleonic wars. But it doesn't follow that the early modern past is marginal to understanding present-day realities. Indeed, I don't think we can understand our world without starting in the late Middle Ages. Because as I intend to show in my book, human life in the Western world today is the complex result of multiple kinds of departures from traditional Christianity, which provided life's institutional context and worldview for nearly everyone in late medieval Europe. My book's descriptive point of departure is the banal observation that the Western world today manifests an extremely wide range of incompatible truth claims pertaining to human values, norms, morality, and meaning. These in turn, another banality, influence how people live and the sorts of lives to which they aspire. Beliefs influence behavior. The early 21st century is marked not by any shared view of what is true or right or good, but by a hyper-pluralism of religious and secular commitments. This heterogeneity generates the social, political, and cultural frictions that exercise liberal political theorists concerned rationally to legitimate the shared commitments that make for viable democracies. Pache, Charles Taylor, in his recent book, A Secular Age, it simply is not the case that all see their option as one among many, and we all shunt between two stances. Rather, many millions of people today seem unperturbed by the hyperpluralism to which they diversely contribute, convinced that their respective views are correct. Others tend in various ways toward the sort of ambivalence or self-relativizing skepticism described by Taylor. But we do not, if we means Europeans and North Americans as such. Indeed, who are we? The content of the answer to this question determines what needs to be explained. In the Western world, we include Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity, no less than the so-called new atheists, NASCAR enthusiasts, as well as MoMA devotees, Britney Spears and Angela Merkel. Notwithstanding their radical differences, all of them, like all of us, are equally the product of historical processes, people living in the early 21st century Western world. 
I am arguing in my book against the prevailing picture of a strongly historicist supersession of ideas, institutions, or eras between the late Middle Ages and the present. Inherited truth claims were often denounced without being disproven, just as worldviews and institutions were often not left behind, but rather persisted in complex ways, interacting with rival claims and new historical realities. Ignoring this fact yields history that distorts our understanding of the present, perhaps especially regarding religion. For the supersessionist narrative is closely related to the view that Protestantism transcended Catholicism, after which enlightened reason, historicism, biblical criticism, and modern science ostensibly rendered obsolete the pre-modern claims of all revealed religion. Voila, Weberian disenchantment and secular moderns stranded in the present. Such a narrative might be credible if it, encounter, if it accounted for who we are, but it doesn't come close. For starters, the central truth claims and related practices of traditional Christianity, as embodied in Roman Catholicism, have never gone away. They have persisted from the Reformation era to the present, continue, contributing to hyperpluralism today. So too have the myriad forms of Protestant Christianity, so powerfully evident a presence in the US. When was the last time you read an overview of post-Enlightenment intellectual history that included not only Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, but also Newman, Barth, and de Lubach? Only a confessionally secularist agenda, one which ignores the social realities of religious faith and practice in the modern world, plus sophisticated contemporary theology, biblical scholarship, and philosophy of religion, could pretend that post-Enlightenment intellectual history might responsibly be told as a story of inexorably incremental Weberian disenchantment and a putatively inevitable growth of post-Darwinian atheism. As if Jürgen Habermas and Joseph Ratzinger hadn't gone head to head over religion, philosophy, and politics in Munich in January 2004. Common historical starting points for narratives of the modern Western world, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, or the French revolution, begin too late and presuppose too much to explain the world in which we live. In order to shed more light, three important steps are necessary. First, we need to begin earlier. Late medieval and Reformation Europe are not the mere predecessor background over against which modern ideologies and institutions define themselves. The latter are rather the tangled continuation and development of late medieval and early modern innovations. Second, we need to proceed differently than the customary movement through apocal blocks in successive stages, which tends to overlook in important ways in which the deep past remains influential in the present. Third and finally, we need to distinguish the intelligibility of the past from any connotations of inevitability. Things did not have to turn out as they have. Crucial decisions were made that did not have to be made, some of which were acted upon, institutionalized, and became deeply consequential. These three steps lead to a different conceptualization of historical explanation and method. Its aim is analytically to distinguish and to follow in targeted ways a number of influential strands across different domains of human life. Together, in relationship to one another, they enable us to account more adequately for change over time and thus for the content and character of the present. The six chapters of the book on which I'm working are each devoted to one strand, three chiefly concerned with intellectual developments and three primarily with institutional, political, and economic developments. Most of my lecture today is an abbreviated version of chapter two, which focuses on the bases of religious and philosophical truth claims. I've also included a bit today from chapter three, which analyzes the public exercise of power by states and their relationship to churches and I haven't forgotten the title of my talk. Its significance will become clear at the end of my lecture when I will discuss the notion of nostalgia in relationship to the analysis I'm presenting. So much then for the present and this opening discourse on method. Let's go back five centuries. Our status quo ante is traditional Catholicism, that is, Western Christianity as embodied in the late medieval Latin church. It comprised an institutionalized worldview, a multi-layered combination of beliefs, practices, and institutions built up over centuries. Deeply embedded in medieval social life, political relationships, and the wider culture, its ostensible principal raison d'etre 
was the sanctification of the baptized through the practice of the Christian faith, such that they might be saved eternally when judged by God after death. Its central truth claim was that the same transcendent God of love who was radically distinct from the universe he had created ex nihilo had become incarnate in Jesus Christ. The church was the continuing instrument for the achievement of God's plan of salvation for the human race after the ascension of Christ that followed his crucifixion and resurrection. Traditional Christianity on the eve of the Reformation exhibits two major paradoxes. First, it combines sharp limits on orthodoxy with a wide range of tolerance of diverse local beliefs and practices. Beyond a few basic expectations and implicit affirmation of the truth claims they presupposed, variety and voluntarism marked religious life, from minimal participation in collective practices to the spiritual athleticism of individuals such as Henry Suzo or Catherine of Genoa. But crossing the wrong lines could quickly land one in serious trouble, as the Valdensians, Lollards, and Hussites knew firsthand. As a result, the church exhibited both an identifiable unity in doctrinal, liturgical, devotional, and institutional terms across Latin Christendom from Iceland to Poland, and a cornucopia of local religious customs, voluntary devotional practices, particular jurisdictional privileges, divergent theological approaches, and syncretistic beliefs in a spectrum ranging from the impeccably orthodox to the edge of heresy. In this sense, the late medieval church was a large playground enclosed by forbidding fences. An enormous diversity held together in an overarching unity by a combination of custom, institutions, varying degrees of self-conscious dedication, and the threat of punishment. The second paradox of late medieval Christianity is its combination of long-standing, widely criticized shortcomings with unprecedented thriving lay devotion and dedication. Notwithstanding Hetzinger's judgments about its purported spiritual decadence, the 15th century was arguably more devout than any preceding century in the history of Western Christianity. Never before had so many of the laity thrown themselves into their religious lives with such gusto, with so many devotions to Christ and the saints, confraternities, works of charity, practices of pious reading, and monetary contributions in support of the church. At the same time, criticisms of clerical corruption and greed, of manifest sinfulness by individuals in every station of life, were legion throughout the late Middle Ages. From the 14th century Avignonese papacy into the 16th century, preachers such as Bernardino of Siena, reformers such as Jean Gerson, and, the ch and churchmen such as Antonino of Florence, exhorted Christians to live as Christ and the church taught that they should live. Such reforming efforts had an effect. New spiritual movements, such as the Devotio Moderna, enjoyed great success despite provoking suspicions. New confraternities, such as the Oratory of Divine Love, attracted members. The Observantine movement revitalized hundreds of male and female monasteries, and the sacred philology of the Northern Humanists sought through erudition and education to instruct and thus morally to renew Christians. But repeated calls for a systematic reform in Capite et Membris found no sustained response among popes and the papal curia, even when, under duress, Pope Julian II called the Fifth Lateran Council in 1512. The nepotistic wealthy cardinals at the papal court and the aristocratic prince bishops of the Holy Roman Empire saw that any thoroughgoing reforms concerning simony, pluralism, and ecclesiastical revenues would undermine their wealth and privileges. The gulf between the church's prescriptions and the practices of its members, from clerical avarice in high places to lay superstition among the unlearned, inspired constant calls to close the gap, from Catherine of Siena in the 1370s to Erasmus in the 15-teens. But the church's prescriptions, based on its truth claims, were a given. Apart from their rejection by members of minority groups, such as the Bohemian Hussites and the tiny number of English Lollards, and of course the comparatively small numbers of Jews and Iberian Muslims. The sometimes implicit doctrines that delimited orthodoxy were logically presupposed by practices such as the celebration of the liturgy, processions and pilgrimages, and prayers to saints, as well as by institutions such as the papacy, a sacerdotal priesthood, religious orders, and confraternities. 
The negotiated concordats that began in the 14 teens between late medieval rulers and popes altered neither the church's truth claims nor its assertions about right religious practice. Nor were its doctrines changed when some city councils in the Holy Roman Empire began wresting jurisdictional control over many ecclesiastical affairs away from their respective bishops. For to reject the church's doctrines was to reject its authority as the caretaker of God's saving truth, the means of eternal salvation legitimated with biblical reference for more than a millennium to its establishment by Christ himself. This rejection is precisely what happened in the Reformation. Protestant reformers spurned the established church and many tr truth claims of traditional Christianity. Their repudiation was not based primarily on the church's rampant abuses, the sinfulness of many of its members, or entrenched obstacles to reform. All of these had been obvious to conscientious reformers for well over a century. The real point of the Reformation was that Roman Catholicism was a perverted form of Christianity even at its best, even if all of its members had been deliberately following all of the Roman Church's teachings and enacting all of its permitted practices. Institutional abuses and immorality were seen as symptomatic signs of a flawed foundation, namely false and dangerous doctrines, that is, mistaken truth claims. Once the scales fell from long-clouded eyes in the early Reformation, errors had to be rejected in light of God's truth. This meant comparing latter-day doctrines, practices, and institutions with the one genuine source for Christian faith and life, namely God's word in scripture, and cleaving to the latter. Martin Luther expressed the principle as early as July 1519 at the Leipzig Disputation. No faithful Christian can be forced beyond the sacred scripture, which is properly speaking the divine law, unless new and approved revelation is added. On the contrary, on the basis of divine law, we are prohibited to believe unless it is supported by divine scripture or clear revelation. The Roman church had selfishly twisted or ignored the word of God to suit its own interests, from the bogus donation of Constantine to the revenue streams that poured into papal coffers from the sale of church offices. Their Lord commanded Christians to return to him in fidelity and holiness, in word and deed, guided by the Holy Spirit, beginning with God's own truth claims taught in the Bible uncluttered by human traditions and clerical manipulations. Back to the word of God, to the gospel, to the saving truth. There was just one problem. From the very beginning, those who rejected Rome disagreed about what God's word said, and so about what God's truth was. So they disagreed about what Christians were to believe and do. By March 1522, Andreas Bodenstein von Karlstadt disputed Luther's marginalization of the book of James, plus his views on the character of the Old Testament, Eucharistic practice, the oral confession of sins, and the permissibility of religious images. Luther and Melanchthon disagreed with Zwingli and the latter's allies about the nature of Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, a dispute that inspired scores of vitriolic pamphlets in less than four years, and culminated in a dramatic face-to-face non-resolution at the Marburg Colloquy of 1529. This became the doctrinal and therefore the ecclesial and social headwaters of the distinction between Lutheran and Reformed Protestantism. Zwingli disagreed as well with his former colleagues, such as Balthazar Hubmeier and Konrad Grebel, over the biblical basis for infant baptism, with its dramatic ecclesiological implications for the nature of the Christian community. This conflict led to the origins of Swiss Anabaptism by early 1525, the same year in which the Zurich City Council enacted capital legislation against the Anabaptists. By then, the German Peasants' War was raging, with leaders such as Thomas Munzer flatly rejecting Luther's distinction between the gospel and social, economic, and political concerns. Other reformers, such, such as Hans Hergott and Michael Geismeyer, shared Munzer's appreciation for the gospel's socioeconomic implications but rejected his apocalyptic exhortations to violence, envisioning instead communitarian Christian communities predicated on a dismantling of feudal relations. Withdrawing from dreams of remaking society after the utter defeat of the common man in the Peasants' War, Anabaptists proved a highly contentious lot, disagreeing among themselves in a host of doctrinally and therefore socially divisive ways beginning already in the late 1520s. I could go on, but for analytical purposes, it would be superfluous. What I am saying is known to everyone with a textbook knowledge of the Reformation and 
one of my former students who took my class at Stanford and is in the audience, I trust, uh, recognizes everything that I'm saying. These are only a few major disagreements about the meaning, implications, and application of God's word from Central Europe in the 1520s, encompassing the entire Reformation era, say up to the mid-17th century, discloses many more disagreements and divisions, whether between so-called Philippus and Genesia Lutherans in Germany after Luther's death in 1547, among Dutch Anabaptists beginning in the 1530s and continuing throughout the era, or between Reformed Protestants and Arminians in the Low Countries in England in the early 17th century. Christians who rejected the Roman Church's truth claims, despite certain alliances and reconciliations among some of the constituent groups, never exhibited anything remotely resembling agreement about their alternative claims. What came to be called Protestantism was marked by disagreements about God's word and scripture that began even before Luther's formal condemnation in the spring of 1521. Yet you might ask, Luther wrote in 1520, what then is this word, or in what manner is it to be used, since there are so many words of God? Great questions. From the very outset of the Reformation, the shared commitment to sola scriptura led neither to clarity nor consensus. It immediately entailed a hermeneutical open-endedness that proved doctrinally contentious, socially divisive, and sometimes politically subversive. Demands to conform could always be met, for example, with Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than men. The Swiss Brethren used this passage to justify their rejection of infant baptism, much to Zwingli's consternation. Benoit Jacon of Geneva, however, quoted this verse in 1544 and cited the parable of the Good Samaritan to justify her view that having multiple sexual partners besides her husband was a legitimate expression of love for her brothers in Christ. Her exegesis neither impressed nor amused the members of the Genevan consistory. And I'm very grateful that some people laughed because that is the only funny thing in my entire talk. So good. <laughs> I, otherwise, I would have struck out. Here is the surprising thing. In the insistence on scripture as the authoritative basis for Christian faith and life, combined with the many different ways in which the Bible was interpreted and applied, we have the fundamental ideological origin of contemporary Western hyperpluralism. For the sorts of disagreements about truth characteristic of the early Reformation have never gone away. They have only been transformed, modified, and expanded in terms of content even as efforts have been made to contain and manage their effects. And they have prompted in turn novel kinds of attempted answers to the sorts of questions that the many varieties of Protestantism and traditional Christianity continue to provide. Questions about truth, morality, values, human priorities, and purpose. One such type of alternative answer, as we shall see, is modern philosophy. Meanwhile, the proliferation and transformation emergence and disappearance of forms of Protestantism has proceeded apace down to the present through, for example, its democratization in the United States during the first third of the 19th century, masterfully studied by Nathan Hatch and more broadly explored by historians such as George Marsden and Mark Knoll. Anyone who doubts Protestantism's persistence and proliferating pluralism need only open the yellow pages of the Chicago phone book and look under churches after I finish my lecture. One obstacle to seeing the Reformation's relevance for contemporary hyperpluralism has been the tendency of Reformation scholars not to think much about history beyond the late 17th century, and of modernists not to think much about post-Enlightenment realities in relationship to the effects of sola scriptura. Another has been the propensity of Reformation historians analytically to separate the magisterial Reformation, Lutheranism, Reformed Protestantism, and the Church of England, from the radical Reformation. Because radical Protestants rejected alliances between religious bodies and political authorities, they were not engaged in confessionalization in the demographically ambitious manner characteristic of Catholics, Lutherans, and Reformed Protestants. Familists shaped gender roles as little as the Swiss Brethren affected state building. Schwenkfelders wielded no political power, and the Davidite influence on wider cultural trends was precisely nil. So they and other radical Protestants are left to niche specialists, while Reformation scholars focus on the important things, state and society, politics and power, 
culture, and confessionalization. To be sure, all these concerns are fundamental. We cannot understand the era and its consequences without understanding them. But therefore, to treat the Radical Reformation as an inconsequential sideshow is to miss its critical importance. Historically reintegrated with the Magisterial Reformation, it reveals how the Reformation as a whole exposes the 16th century roots of our own hyperpluralism via the full range of incompatible truth claims that a common commitment to sola scriptura provided. We should remember two things about Protestant reformers in the Reformation era. First, along with their Catholic contemporaries, they understood that the principle of non-contradiction was required for the pursuit and assertion of truth in any domain of human life. So they knew that it was impossible for their respective contradictory assertions all to be true in fact. Rival claims had to be mistaken if their own were true, a logical necessity that helps to explain the massive production of doctrinal controversy in literally tens of thousands of publications throughout the era. Second, Protestant reformers were not secular philologists, merely seeking accurate interpretations of ancient texts. They were Christians seeking eternal salvation. They thought that beyond scholarship, a correct understanding of the Bible, a genuine comprehension of God's word, depended upon some sort of direct enlightenment by God. Expressions of this supplementary interpretative principle took different forms, whether an insistence on the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart, a distinction between the internal and the external word, or a contrast between God's living word and the mere letter of scripture. Simply reading the Bible, whether in translation or in the original languages, was not enough. If we are to receive and understand anything, Zwingli wrote, it must be given from above. Accordingly, the Reformation era is filled not only with Protestant professions about the foundational importance of scripture, coupled with discrepant views about what it meant, but also with pervasive claims about illumination by the Holy Spirit, God's action in the heart of the believer, William Tyndale's distinction between an historical faith and a feeling faith, and so forth. A distinction between the enlightened and the unenlightened, whatever its specific form, helped protagonists to explain others' stubbornness. Whoever they were and whatever they claimed, they had not been taught authentically by God. The way out of darkness was to open oneself to the light, which suggested a means of overcoming the disagreements about God's teachings. But however satisfactory such criteria were in explaining to each interpreter why other biblical readers were wrong, they proved utterly useless for resolving the doctrinal disagreements. Parallel to the principle of sola scriptura itself, appeals to the Spirit's influence were voiced by those on all sides of every dispute. What am I to do, Erasmus asked already in 1524, when many persons allege different interpretations, each one of whom swears to have the Spirit? Indeed. This implies not only to major figures such as Luther, Zwingli, or Calvin, or to Anabaptist leaders such as Hans Hutt or Pilgrim Marpeck, it also pertains to those who embraced a more robust spiritualism, such as Caspar Schwenkfeld and Sebastian Frank in the early German Reformation, Dirk Kornhert or Valentin Weigel in the later 16th century, or English Quakers such as George Fox and James Naylor in the mid 17th century. These Protestant spiritualists saw that recourse to sola scriptura had created a jungle of incompatible truth claims among those who rejected the Roman church. Objectionably papist, merely human ecclesiastical tradition had simply been supplanted by objectionably subjective, merely human biblical interpreters. Something else was needed. Spiritualists thought they'd found a way around open-ended Protestant pluralism by downplaying the text of scripture relativizing the importance of doctrines, minimizing external worship, and or insisting that spiritual interiority was the heart of Christianity. In fact, all such notions only added more rival truth claims and forms of Protestantism to the already existing pluralism. Competing claims about the genuine understanding of scripture were compounded by competing claims about authentic inspiration by God. It was entirely unclear and remain so today, who actually might have been or might today be right among those claiming to have the spirit. 
Rival assertions that one really has the spirit only demonstrate the problem. As Erasmus already recognized, as English Restoration opponents of religious enthusiasm would reiterate, and as atheistic propagandists such as Richard Dawkins point out today. During the Leipzig Disputation in 1519, Luther said that scripture was the sole authority for Christians unless new and approved revelation is added. Of course, Luther himself did not offer any scriptural additions. Others, however, implied in effect that new revelation from God was precisely the means to overcome the impasses. Such claims extended convictions about supplementary illumination by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, if the living God was real, it would have been absurd to insist that he could not reveal himself in 16th century Europe as he had in ancient Israel. Amidst conflicting claims by merely human biblical interpreters, what could be more authoritative than direct declarations by God about what Christians were to believe and do? From the beginning of the 1520s then, starting with Thomas Munzer and the Zwickau prophets, direct revelation from God was regarded by various Christians as the necessary key to the Bible's meaning, and in some cases as superseding scripture altogether. Claims of robust direct revelation from God were common throughout the Reformation era. The Strasbourg prophets of the later 1520s, for example, influenced another purported prophet, Melchior Hoffmann, who in turn influenced Dutch Anabaptism, including the polygamous Second David of the New Jerusalem, King Jan van Leiden of Munster. The Dutch Anabaptist leader, David Joris, was held by his followers to be a spirit-filled prophet, as was Hendrik Nicleis, the founder of the Family of Love in the 1540s. Many more examples could be given, such as the early Stuart radical Protestant John Trask and numerous figures who flourished during the English Revolution. Nor was this phenomenon restricted to the Reformation era. Various alleged prophets and messiahs have continued to make their respective claims down to the present day. Historians usually don't think in this category across the divide between early modern and modern, but they should. The best known and most successful modern example is probably the American polygamist Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in early 19th century upstate New York. Extending our purview to the present takes in figures such as Jim Jones and his People's Temple, which imploded in Guyana in 1978, as well as David Koresh and his Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, who perished in their showdown with federal officials in 1993. Notwithstanding their many obvious differences, these individuals and groups share the truth claim that extra-biblical revelation transcends the Protestant pluralism produced by Sola Scriptura, a proliferation especially apparent in modern democratic states with their absence of doctrinal control by any confessional authorities. As with less expansive appeals to illumination by the Holy Spirit, however, Claims of decisive extra-biblical revelation have never resolved the pluralism they are intended to overcome. Figures such as Munzer, Hoffman, Jan van Leiden, Nicklaes, George Fox, and others claimed wildly contradictory things as divinely revealed by God, from the need for proactive apocalyptic violence to pacifist withdrawal from political life, from the necessity of new rituals to the unimportance of all externals in religious worship how to evaluate the rival claims, whether among early modern Europeans or now remains even more obscure than how to adjudicate rival claims based on sola scriptura or scripture supplemented by the Holy Spirit, where at least there are common texts to refer to. Competing assertions of direct revelation from God only intensify the condition they are intended to resolve. Ever since Joseph Smith began making his claims in the 1820s, for example, the overwhelming majority of Christians have seen them not as a clarifying fulfillment of traditional Christian truth claims, but as bizarre, deeply objectionable departures from them. Accordingly, Mormonism has become just another component within the contemporary religionscape. In Jan Schipps's analysis, a religious tradition as different from historical Christianity as ancient Christianity eventually proved to be different from ancient Judaism. An analysis of conflicting truth claims over the long durée is necessary but far from sufficient for understanding contemporary hyperpluralism. So before turning to modern philosophy and its role in contributing to the same, I will move away from ideas and religious truth claims and talk briefly about institutions. Rival Reformation-era Christian protagonists thought 
that the issues involved bore on the possibility of eternal salvation, so they showed themselves willing to kill and die for them. This occurred within individual polities in the judicial execution of unrepentant heretics or religious traitors, which, from the side of authorities, sought to eliminate the dangers posed by heretics' deadly errors. From the side of co-religionists, such executions created heroic martyrs, whose imitation of Christ extended even through his passion and death. Besides judicial executions, several major civil and international conflicts, from the German Peasants' War through the English Revolution, while not motivated exclusively by religion, cannot be understood apart from their respective protagonists' doctrinal commitments. Christian religious violence in the Reformation era is lucidly intelligible on the terms of its respective protagonists. It also proved unsustainably destructive to the societies torn apart by it. Different solutions were attempted, conceding to territorial rulers in the empire their choice of either Lutheranism or Catholicism after 1555, creating a tenuous place for religious minorities, whether English Catholics beginning in Elizabeth's reign or French Protestants after the Edict of Nantes, or dividing previously united territories, as essentially occurred in the Low Countries by 1585. Cutting the Gordian knot, however, required the legitimation of Leviathan. As certain pragmatic advocates of compromise began to suggest during the French Wars of Religion, and as Hobbes argued in 1651, amid the tumult of the English Revolution. Confessional conflicts prompted a new rationale for the state. By saving warring Christians from themselves, it would secure for its citizens an apparently otherwise elusive stability. Beginning in certain respects during the Golden Age Dutch Republic and gaining institutional sanction in the new United States of America, the eventual outcome would be the state's protection of freedom of religious belief and practice as a solution to the problems posed by disruptive religious pluralism. We all know the basic arrangement. In exchange for political obedience, each individual is permitted to believe or not to believe whatever she wishes, to practice or not practice whatever religion she prefers, and to express herself with respect to religion however she would like. In what Mark Lilla has recently called the Great Separation, Religion is privatized, and religious freedom is made an individual right, with the state alone determining public morality and controlling the public expression of religious practice. The solution to the problem of religious disagreement, intolerance, violence, and coercion, as Western writers and journalists repeatedly invoke today with reference to Islam and Sharia, is religious toleration and freedom of religion under the aegis of the secular state and its laws. This sort of freedom of religion is a means of managing the disruptions that can, and in the Reformation era did, stem from unresolved religious disagreements. Of course, it does not answer questions concerning which, if any, of the rival views might be true, and so is not a solution to this problem from the Reformation era, which has never gone away. The entire point of politically protected religious freedom is to bracket the question of truth claims by permitting individuals to believe whatever they wish. The state thereby provides the institutional framework for the proliferation of any and every religious assertion, no matter how ludicrous. If someone were to establish tomorrow a church of Christian geocentrism, declaring all post-Copernican astronomy to be erroneous, such beliefs would receive the same protection as any other claim. In the realm of fact rather than fantasy, we live with tens of millions of fellow citizens who believe that the earth is more or less 6,000 years old. The modern democratic state, then, with its politically protected guarantees of freedom of religion, is the institutional incubator of contemporary hyperpluralism because of the open-ended range of truth claims that it permits. This, in turn, tends to foster, among many people, the relativistic interpretation that all religion can only be a matter of individual, subjective, and irrational personal preference, a theater of Feuerbachian Freudian projection. Within legal limits, literally anything goes, as far as truth claims and religious practices are concerned, an extension and a latter-day manifestation of the full range of views produced by the Reformation unfettered. In the Habermasian public sphere are pr pr protected not only all Protestant views derived from the principle of sola scriptura and its adjuncts, but any and all religions, religious claims, and post-religious claims that fill a similar niche. Put bluntly, the, historical, the historically consequential trajectory runs from Luther's Here I Stand 
to the present-day slacker mantra, whatever, dude. <laughs> I guess there was one other funny thing there. One. You guys are two for two, good. Now we might think, thank goodness then for the advent of reason in the Enlightenment, which along with modern science has rescued us from the endless religious wrangling and efforts to impose sectarian views on society. Thank goodness we found our way to a sensible secular alternative because unlike scripture alone, reason alone yields truth claims that are actually true. Or so champions of secular reason have argued from the 17th century up to the present. Before considering whether we are so fortunate, we should note that reason was variously employed in the Reformation era as yet another means try that, employed to try to overcome the unintended pluralism created by sola scriptura. Despite the emphasis on justification by faith alone among reformers who followed Luther's lead, reason played a crucial role in articulating and defending Protestant claims about what the Bible said and what Christianity was. The subsidiary questions were exactly in what manner and with what scope reason was to be applied. Luther used it in many ways, including his reading of conciliar decrees as a basis for criticizing Catholic practices with which he disagreed. Zwingli used reason to argue against the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist against both Luther and the Catholic Church. Their contemporary, the Spaniard Michael Servetus, used reason to reject as unbiblical and incomprehensible the doctrine of the Trinity, part of a stream of anti-Trinitarian Christianity that would include Fausto Sozzini and 17th century Polish Brethren communities as the historical predecessors of modern Unitarianism. In the 1650s, the Quaker exegete Samuel Fisher, defending the inner light, used reason to undermine the reliability of scripture, an effort that influenced Spinoza. In combining an insistence on inner illumination with criticisms of biblical reliability, the Quakers resembled the Dutch collegians, with whom Spinoza was friends. This sort of Protestant spiritualism thus became a bridge to modern rationalism, and metaphysical naturalism in biblical exegesis. Even these few examples show that appeals to reason as a means of resolving the impasses created by sola scriptura yielded the same result as appeals to the Holy, script, to the, to the Holy Spirit or claims of new revelation. Because protagonists differed over how reason was to be applied to disputed truth claims, it became yet another means by which Protestant pluralism was increased rather than overcome. The same pattern obtained in the 17th century. Weary of doctrinal controversy and its concomitant social disruptiveness, political unrest, and military destruction, Hugo Grotius during the Thirty Years' War and latitudinarian Anglican theologians downplayed the importance of the doctrines that divided Christians. Instead, they championed reason and natural law as the foundations for genuine Christianity. But as with spiritualism, this produced contradictory ideas about what truth claims and correlative practices were implied by reason and natural law. Failing to carry the day, then or since, divergent Protestant claims about reason's application have persisted to the present, not only among liberal Protestants, but among modern evangelicals, Pentecostals, and others. They have further augmented Protestantism's expansive pluralism, most visibly in the United States, which protects all of its expressions and practices, provided they remain politically quiescent. Contradictory truth claims based on sola scriptura created an unintended and an unwelcome problem. The attempted answers considered thus far have been adjuncts to Protestantism itself. They have presupposed Christian claims about divine revelation in significant continuity with the truth claims of traditional Christianity. But such answers are not yet modern because modernity is secular and rejects all this, or so the dominant narratives of modernization and secularization tell us. The real way out of the intellectual conundrums, the social unrest, political conflict, and religious wars of the early modern period, it is claimed, was not a Band-Aid, but an amputation, an application of reason alone by modern philosophy and science, whose advocates by the late 18th century were building on 17th century predecessors such as Hobbes and Spinoza. They asserted with increasing frequency that all revealed religion was irrational superstition, a view that would be reinforced by others in combination with 19th century historicism and Darwinism. The root problem, it was claimed, was the assumption shared by Protestants and Catholics alike. 
that questions about truth, morality, purpose, and meaning were to be answered in ways that depended on claims of supernatural revelation by a transcendent God who would become incarnate for the salvation of fallen humanity. Did any of this make any sense? Could it endure the scrutiny of critical rationality, whether in ancient forms revivified by late Renaissance thinkers or as developed in new early modern philosophies? The credo of modern philosophy, the Enlightenment, and 19th century notions of progress would be that sola ratio could achieve what sola scriptura manifestly could not. A clean break with the past was necessary, rejecting Christianity's endless doctrinal controversies and destructive religious wars. Among the ancient philosophies revived in the Renaissance was Peronian skepticism. After the publication of Sextus Empiricus in 1562, skeptical ideas spread especially through Montaigne's enormously popular essays, which treated cultural relativism, skepticism about knowledge of the natural world, and the problem of adjudication among rival religious claims. As Richard Popkin first showed nearly 50 years ago, modern philosophy's foundationalist aspirations, beginning with Descartes, emerged in an intellectual milieu pervaded by Peronian skepticism. In an epistemological context, the objective was to transcend skeptical doubt about the possibility of knowledge, of moral principles, metaphysics, including God, human nature, and the natural world. In the context of competing views about Christian truth, the objective was to secure a rational, secular foundation for the domains of human life covered by religion, and so to provide a means of transcending destructive conflicts. Because reliance on scripture had led to so many contradictory truth claims, reason would have to supplant it as the foundation for truth. The philosopher would have to reject all inherited traditions and defer to no alleged authorities in order to transcend them all and to exorcise the Peronian demon. After Descartes first realized how numerous were the false opinions that he had previously taken to be true, and so how dubious was everything he had inferred on their basis, he realized he had to start over. I had to raise everything to the ground and begin again from the original foundations if I wanted to establish anything firm and lasting in the sciences. Hobbes, no less enamored than Descartes with geometry as a model of certainty for philosophy, also insisted on the necessity of finding truth apart from received opinions, texts, and authorities. Those men that take their instruction from the authority of books and not from their own meditation, he wrote in Leviathan, are as much below the condition of ignorant men as men endued with true science are above it. In 1739, Hume noted the ignorance which still prevailed in the most important questions that can come before the tribunal of human reason, in no small part due to principles taken upon trust, consequences lamely deduced from them, want of coherence in the parts, and evidence in the whole. Buffeted by the divergent claims of different philosophers, Rousseau emphasized independent thought. Their philosophy is meant for others. I need one for myself. Let me seek it with all my might while there is still time so that I may have an assured rule of conduct for the rest of my days. According to Kant, independence from authorities plus the exercise of reason was the very essence of Aufklärung and autonomy. Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his reason without direction from another. Sapere aude, have courage to use your own reason. That is the motto of enlightenment. In my book chapter, I take this into the 20th century, but you get the idea. The independent exercise of reason by the individual, liberated from the constraints of tradition and deference to authority, is the putative means by which to discern the truth about morality, metaphysics, and the material world. There was and remains, alas, just one problem. Philosophers since the early 17th century have never remotely agreed about what reason dictates, discloses, or prescribes, whether in terms of metaphysics or morality. Nor, in dramatic contrast to the natural sciences, are there criteria for determining whether their efforts are converging more nearly toward truth. Empirically and historically speaking, as is the case with Protestantism, precisely the opposite is the case. All that is evident are new rounds of divergent truth claims. Modern philosophy sought to provide what Protestantism could not, via reason rather than scripture. Not only has it failed thus far, but judging from the last four centuries and from contemporary philosophy, there seems no good reason to think it might ever succeed. 
I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for Jean-Luc Marion, Hilary Putnam, Julia Kristeva, Peter Singer, Daniel Dennett, and Alvin Plantinga to come even close to agreeing about the truths of morality and metaphysics on the basis of reason. The full range of analytical and continental philosophers today simply contributes to the hyperpluralism characteristic of the findings and claims of the humanities and social sciences in the academy. As such, contemporary philosophers are the latter-day heirs to 17th century rationalists, empiricists, and neo-Stoics, or 19th century neo-conscients, Hegelian idealists, and positivists. As Alistair McIntyre has observed, the same critique leveled by late 19th century philosophers against theologians in seeking to discredit theology as a rational discourse with a rightful place in the modern university has long applied also to philosophers. That is, there is no consensus at all among them about the most important questions in their discipline, what methods are best for trying to answer them, or how disagreements about such issues could be resolved. The first heavy blows against modern philosophy were, of course, delivered by Nietzsche in the 1870s and 80s with his attacks on revealed religion and philosophy. He ridiculed Spinoza's views, for example, as the conceptual cobweb spinning of a hermit absorbed in the love of his wisdom and denounced Kant as a cunning Christian and the most deformed conceptual cripple there has ever been. Third funny thing, I guess. But precisely in Nietzsche's self-admiring and self-absorbed self-understanding as an intrepid trailblazer supposedly breaking with authority and tradition, Nietzsche simply followed in the well-worn footsteps of the modern philosophers whom he belittled. Despite fancying himself as the first thinker to transcend post-Socratic philosophy, Nietzsche merely added more competing truth claims to already existing philosophical options. One who took up the Nietzschean option was Michel Foucault, for whom it prompted his shift in emphasis from archaeology to genealogy beginning in 1971. It's no accident that following the collapse of the new left in the 1970s and 80s, Foucault's neo-Nietzschean thought has become so popular among American academics in multiple disciplines. It permits the continuation of the liberationist narrative of modernity in a post-Marxist, post-modern idiom, mediating the migration of a secular sense of purpose via scholarship properly politicized around the hegemonic one-note theme of power imposed and resisted, scholarship can remain meaningful, even if one studies obscure people who lived centuries ago. But Foucault's philosophy, like Nietzsche's, is no less based on disputable truth claims than any other, however much it helps to illuminate the particularly self-serving expressions of post-enlightenment instrumentalist rationality deployed in modern Western colonialism or in the modern state's domination of human life. Foucault's thought is not a foundationalist philosophical answer, succeeding where thinkers from Descartes through Husserl failed. It is a constructed product born of late 20th century hyperpluralism combined with disgust at the self-justificatory exercise of power by and for the powerful. What holds contemporary hyperpluralism together in day-to-day -day North American and European life are the political institutions and largely enforced laws of powerful states, the limits of which have nevertheless been exposed in the recent and continuing global financial crisis. Within their legal frameworks, contemporary Western states permit individuals to believe whatever they wish and to buy whatever they please in societies permeated by a symbiosis of capitalism and consumerism. The societal outcome of avarice renamed in the 18th century as virtuous self-interest, as Albert Hirschman showed 30 years ago. For whatever we may diversely believe today about what is true and right and good, we are supposed to want ever more and better stuff in an economic system organized to deliver an endless proliferation of consumer goods and their adjunct enjoyments, whether at the income level of Walmart or Bloomingdale's. In the absence of shared views about truth, meaning, values, or purpose amid our hyperpluralism, this appears to be the cementing ethos and the related practices that hold contemporary Western societies together. It accommodates all politically quiescent truth claims based on religious revelation, no less than those based on anti-religious reason. One might regard a situation of ever greater pluralism, diversity, and truth claims as desirable which is perhaps what Lisa Jardine has in mind when she refers to our own exuberant multiculturalism. Liberal democracies allow individuals to live as they please, and that's good. 
Disagreements and conflicts are simply an inevitable side effect that need to be managed as best they can, given legally protected commitments to individual autonomy as the highest good. Relativism simply follows from the hyperpluralism, which is the result of allowing people to live as they please, including individual choices about what is right and wrong, how people should live, and what they should care about. But not all disagreements are of a piece, and not all diversity is desirable, as a moment's reflection makes clear. No one, so far as I know, calls for more racist discourse or incitements to violence at the University of Chicago, thank goodness, even though more of each would obviously increase the university's diversity. Racism and violence are bad things, so they're rejected. Some things shouldn't be tolerated. But what is the basis for moral judgments like these in our current context? Assertions of human rights will hardly do in a society riven by disagreements about what a human being is, as the abortion debate shows so starkly. Why should we treat other human beings with dignity and respect if our own self-interest offers more attractive alternatives? Appeals to human nature are still born in an academic culture dismissive of the very notion as an oppressive essentialist chimera. The natural sciences can offer no help, despite the strained efforts of sociobiologists and evolutionary psychologists, if Homo sapiens is merely an unusually adaptive hominid, no different in kind than other mammalian species with which it shares so much genetic material. The natural sciences neither observe any persons nor discover any rights, for the simple reason that there are none to be found, given the metaphysical postulates and empiricist assumptions of science. So-called transhumanists, such as Simon Young, grasp the implications. Their deliberately eugenicist ethical agenda literally seeks the evolutionary self-transcendence of Homo sapiens through genetic manipulation. If morality is a matter of preference among options, why not opt to make human beings obsolete by improving them? Transhumanists simply want to enact their choices. Claiming that morality is a constructed, contingent matter of preference has a rather problematic corollary. It implies, among other things, that opposition to racism and violence is merely arbitrary. We might happen not to like racist or sadistic or murderous views and actions, but that's just us. They are not intrinsically wrong because nothing is, or indeed can be, if, as physics Nobel laureate Steven Weinberg claims, we are inventing values for ourselves as we go along. Neither are genocide, rape, torture, or the selling of teenage girls into sexual slavery intrinsically wrong. We simply happen to live in a culture in which the majority happens not to like such things. But perhaps people could be gradually persuaded to change their minds, or progressively pressured to adapt to different practices, or incrementally compelled to tolerate what previously they would not, as human beings have shown themselves so capable of doing. Depending on what we're talking about, the sort of relativistic inference frequently drawn from the fact of hyperpluralism, when expressed, for example, in blithe rejections of the notion of truth, is a dangerous, not to mention incoherent, move. It is incoherent because the assertion that there are no non-subjective truths is itself a truth claim. I'm all in favor of diversity with respect to ethnicities, art, literature, cuisine, and so forth but I regard the relativizing inference frequently drawn from the sociological fact of moral pluralism as not only dangerous, but potentially catastrophic. Unless, of course, one doesn't mind some genocide or rape, or thinks that the line from a song of 80s rock star Pat Benatar applies just fine to the ambitions of transhumanists. No one can tell us we're wrong. Her lyrics are simply an echo and corollary of Nietzsche's claim. There are no moral facts, whatever. What does all this have to do with history? Everything. Because human ideas and decisions and actions, institutionalized and embedded in complex historical processes, have led to our current situation. None of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century sought to create an open-ended pluralism of rival claims about what the Bible says, but their decisions and actions taken together did exactly this, against their intentions. Every attempt to transcend the pluralism only exacerbates it, fostering in turn skepticism about religion in general. So too, no modern philosophers since Descartes sought to articulate incompatible views about morality, metaphysics, and meaning based on reason alone, but this is exactly what transpired as a result of their decisions and actions. As McIntyre has shown, moral disagreements today 
whether among philosophers or the population at large, are not merely difficult, but impossible to resolve because their protagonists assume incompatible views about human beings, the good, and morality itself. And so we find ourselves in the midst of a hyperpluralism whose implications are far from uniformly encouraging and which might come to threaten the viability of the democratic institutions that foster it. Since this is an Yves Simone lecture, it would be negligent not to mention a frequently overlooked, intellectually defensible, and coherent alternative, not only to moral relativism, but to the open-ended pluralisms of Protestantism and modern philosophy, traditional Christianity as embodying in the, in the teachings of Roman Catholicism. It esteems scripture as the word of God and reason as a precious gift of human createdness in God's image, but it rejects that either can rightly or wisely be separated from the tradition rooted in testimony about God's actions in Jesus of Nazareth as the definitive defined self-revelation for human beings. The egregious shortcomings and manifest sinfulness of members of the church in the late Middle Ages, including popes and other prelates, are not only undeniable, they also help to account for the appeal and the success of Reformation claims. Yet failure to live up to teachings does not somehow render them mistaken. If God really did become incarnate in Jesus, who worked miracles and was raised from the dead, and who really is re-presented in the Eucharist as celebrated in the Mass as a fundamental way in which the hidden God remains mysteriously manifest in and through his creation, then these things were and remain so, regardless of how many or how awful are the sins committed by Catholics. Catholic Christianity, thank goodness, rests not on the sinlessness of Catholics, but on God's alleged actions in history, transmitted via testimony, developed in teachings, and embodied in shared practices through an authoritative tradition. I have not forgotten about the title of my talk. Doesn't all this amount to a nostalgic yearning for a medieval past when everything was supposedly ordered and clear in contrast to the messiness of modernity? Not at all. Such a suspicion would be justified were I championing a return to medieval or early modern Catholicism both of which were, of course, complex and teeming with variety. But the continuity of traditional Christianity as embodied and developed in the Catholic Church's teachings makes that unnecessary, even were it desirable or possible. Traditional Christianity remains a living, intellectually viable worldview today. The presumptive association of Catholicism with nostalgia is a symptom of the dubious, supersessionist theory of history that I mentioned at the outset of my talk. Arguments that criticize Catholicism's post-medieval competitors would only imply nostalgia if the Reformation, the Enlightenment, modern science, and or historicism really had transcended Catholicism and left it behind, or actually had somehow disproved central claims of traditional Christianity. This isn't so, although seeing how this is the case would require understanding sophisticated theology, philosophy of religion, and biblical scholarship as articulated, say, in the work of scholars such as Joseph Ratzinger, John Rist, and John Meyer. What the Catholic Church teaches instead of moral relativism and develops with sophistication as part of its moral theology is the biblical and traditional Christian view that some actions and behaviors are intrinsically wrong and evil and can never be justified because human beings really are created in the image and likeness of God. That is minimally what the Wittgensteinian meaning is use upshot of created in God's image means. That millions of people don't believe and act on this is more than merely unfortunate, and certainly it's enormously consequential, as is the fact that so many church leaders have themselves throughout history acted contrary to a proper understanding of it. But neither fact affects the truth of the claim, which, if it is true, explains why so many people think that genocide, for example, is just wrong, even if they can't articulate why. Of course, the church's moral teachings in numerous other respects clash with widespread modern views based on legally protected individual preferences and desires. This is hardly surprising, considering that such views are themselves the historical product of the rejection of traditional Christian claims. After all, traditional Christianity asserts that human beings are sinners, deeply predisposed to selfishness, in constant need of conversion through self-denial, ascetic self-discipline, and the cultivation of virtues and imitation of Christ for the sake of the common good and the fostering of the kingdom of God. 
in stark contrast, modern, secular notions of human beings take self-regarding self-interest and the pursuit of preferred pleasure as a given and think that individuals seek naturally and inevitably to fulfill their self-stipulated desires, which supposedly yield happiness in proportion to their realization. The common good is simply the de facto product of individuals pursuing their respective desires within the social and political conditions that maximize this opportunity for everyone. The traditional Christian and modern secular views are antithetical. One says, satisfy your own desires, and the other says, you must deny your very self. I will close with a quotation not from a Catholic thinker, but from Zygmunt Bauman, one of the great European intellectuals of the past half century. The more tolerant the world becomes of the choices we make, he recently wrote, the less the game, our playing it, and the way we play it are open to choice. One can only say that for the past two or three centuries since that great leap to human autonomy and self-management variously called enlightenment or the advent of the modern era, history has run in a direction no one planned, no one anticipated, and no one wished to take. As I tried to show in my talk, however partially, the ways in which we've arrived at our current situation, however unplanned or unanticipated, are not unintelligible. A certain kind of historical analysis can disclose them, provided that we start sufficiently deep in the past and don't assume that the Reformation rejection of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church is tantamount to disproof of the central truth claims of traditional Christianity. Thank you.